Thanks so much. Oh. Reminds me, we've got some question time a bit later, so please uh, ask a question, slido.com, hashtag HBSP. There might be some questions coming out of chapter 46 and 47. Uh, of the book of Genesis, which we're going to look at this morning. In the first 10 years of our marriage, Kel and I lived in 10 different homes. We lived in a garage at Heathcote when we first got married, just a garage. Uh, and then we lived at Dapdo. Then we lived at Newtown, Beverly Hills, Cranebrook in Western Sydney, Landilo in Western Sydney after I burnt the kitchen down in the Cranebrook house, uh, Warunga on the North Shore, then Pimble, then the house down the road here in Helensburg, and then the house right next door here in Helensburg. And living in so many homes in so, uh, such a little amount of time uh, leaves you thinking about what are the best features about each of the homes in which you live in. When we lived in Newtown, the best feature was where the clothesline was. Uh, being in inner city Sydney, we had to climb up on the vanity of the bathroom, open the window, climb out the window onto the roof, and that's where our uh, clothesline was to hang out our clothes. Uh, it's a fun feature. Put it in your new home. It's going to be a great uh, trend that will catch on around the place. The house that I'm in currently, I love the way uh, the, the house that I'm in currently uh, has the veranda all the way around. It's actually uh, good for my laziness. It means the gutters aren't so bad. But it's also good for uh, 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 shelter and uh, shelter out of the rain and the sun and I love that as well. But I am aware that the house that I live in is not my house. It's your house. I've told that to the youth group kids before. They find that hilarious. I say to the kids, it's not my house, it's your house. They say, does that mean we can come over whenever we want? <laughs> oh, if you want to. I don't, it doesn't really worry me that much. But uh, if you want to, fine, do what you want. Uh, but it is. It's your house, isn't it? It's not my house. It's your house. And I don't say this for sympathy, but if I don't have the role of minister, I don't have the house. Simple as that. If I'm out of the job, I'm out of the house. And I have to be honest with you, and being honest as a minister in the pulpit's always unwise, but anyway, I'll be honest with you, uh, after, after 43 years of life, I see my friends uh, beginning to get closer and closer to owning their homes. I find that hard. I find that personally difficult. In my bad moments, I envy them. And I think to myself, if I don't have this job, I have no house, I have nowhere to live. And I envy them. But in my good moments, I actually rejoice about that reality. And I rejoice about it because none of the 10 homes that I've lived in since we've been married, are actually a home. Neither this one, nor the one in Newtown, nor anyone in between, or even the garage that we first lived in. None of them are a home. And neither is the place that you live. It's not a home. It's a dwelling, it's a shelter, but it's not a home. And actually, the fact that I don't have a home is actually very beneficial for my Christian faith because it changes everything. It changes the way you see life. This morning, we're going to be con confronted in our Western world with this idea that where we live is not our home. It's very hard for us to get our heads around this, but this is what chapter 46 and 47 of the book of Genesis are all about. Our home is somewhere else. And that's great news for us because it changes our outlook on life completely. Like I mentioned, we're going to look at Genesis 46 and 47. 
We're also going to uh, have a question time afterwards, so please do ask your questions. I'm going to pray, then we'll dive into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, be with us. We need your help always to understand your Word. Give us your grace so that we might understand it and put it into practice in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, moving house is the pits, isn't it? Uh, boxes everywhere. You've got to fill them up. You've got to work out which house, it, uh, which uh, room it belongs to right on the top of it. And like I've said, we've done it plenty of times. But I don't know whether it's worse, a shorter move or a longer move. When we moved from the house down the road here, literally up the road up here, we didn't employ removalists. That was a terrible mistake. We walked everything up the road. That was a bad idea. Uh, a mate of mine uh, moved from Engadine to Townsville. 22-hour drive to get all of his stuff there. And I know some of you have moved house overseas before. I cannot imagine how hard that must have been. But not many of us have moved house at 130 years of age, like Jacob, Joseph's dad. He moves house in this passage at 130 years of age. No thanks, I reckon, no thanks. And in chapter 46, we see Jacob take off to visit his son, Joseph. You might remember in this uh, narrative that we've been looking at, Jacob had finally found out that his son, who he believed was dead, was no longer that way. It wasn't dead. He wasn't dead. He was actually alive and down, leading the way in Egypt. But he's worried about making the journey. He's worried about making the journey from the land of Canaan in which he lives to going down to Egypt. Why would he be worried about something like this? Well, Jacob, you might remember, is the, uh, the centrepiece of this passage. We're told back in chapter 37 that this is the account of, Joseph, uh, of, of Jacob, sorry, because he is the one who carries the bloodline promises of God. And you remember these promises, land and offspring and blessing. God had promised a land to his people. And now it would appear as though he's going to give up that land and go and live in Egypt, which is not the land that God gave to his people. Indeed, Abraham had walked through Egypt and been told not to stay there. Isaac had been told outright not to go there at all. And now Jacob seemingly is being told to go down to Egypt. Is this right? To leave the land of the promise? Well, look at chapter 46, verse 2. Knowing that he was worried about it, God spoke to Israel, remember that's Jacob's name as well, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Well, just in these small uh, verses here, we see six words of comfort from God that say it's okay to go to Egypt. Six words of comfort. Number one, God says, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of the bloodline. I am the God of the promises. The promises made to Abraham and to Isaac, to your forefathers. I am God. It's okay to go. Number two, do not be afraid, God says to Jacob. 
This is not just a silence that leads Jacob to go in this direction thinking it might be the wise thing to do, but God's actual approval of doing so. God is in it. Go, Jacob. Number three, he says, I will make you a great nation. The promise of offspring, land and offspring and blessing will be fulfilled in Egypt. Fourthly, he says, I will go with you. God is not tied to his land that he must live there in some way. No, he will go with Jacob down to Egypt. And he says, fifthly, I will bring you up again. Now, Jacob is going to die in Egypt, but it will not be his resting place. He will be brought up again. We'll get to that a little more in a moment. And then sixthly, he says, Joseph will close your eyes. The boy that you love will close your eyes. Yes, you will die, but you will be blessed in your death in that your son will be there with you. So six words of comfort from God in these small verses. And he says, it's okay to go. Go. And so everyone goes. The whole family goes. There is no safety net left behind in the land of Canaan. Now think about that for a minute. God had placed his people in this wonderful land. It's a great land. And now they're all going to get up and they're all going to go down to Egypt. Now what do you imagine would possibly happen under those circumstances? They've got this wonderful piece of land. They get up, they leave. What's going to happen? Well, it'll take about ten and a half seconds for some other group of people to come in and take over that land, won't it? Have you ever been uh, uh, for a picnic on Australia Day down at Bonnyvale? We have, a few times. You've got to get there at 3.30 in the morning to stake your spot, put up your little shelter. But what happens when you finish for the day? Well, when you finish for the day and you want to go home because you woke up at 3.30, so you've only lasted until 9.30 in the morning, you pack up all your stuff and someone is, bang, ready to take that spot straight away, aren't they? Because you've got the front row position down at Bonnyvale. How wonderful is it? And, and yet no one in Canaan stayed behind to mind the spot. No one minding the spot in Canaan. Everyone left to go to Egypt. It's instructive, isn't it? They could have left someone behind to mine the spot for many years, but they didn't do that. And for the next 400 years, God's people would find Egypt as their home. They would be away from their real home and be in the land of Egypt. And so Israel, not just the person, but the nation, moves and takes the promises of God to Egypt. And Jacob himself never really saw the promises of God completely fulfilled in any way. He would die out of the land and with some offspring, but not a huge group and not a great blessing to the people. But, but he trusted God. Look at just these verses of how it's described in Hebrews chapter 11. You'll see it on the screen. I won't get you to turn there. But this is what it says. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he is prepared for them a city. And then a few verses later it says this, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. 
the writer of the Hebrews is saying, Jacob understood that he was following God, that he was following the promises of God. And even if he didn't see the promises fulfilled, he knew that God was with him and he trusted what God was doing in moving him to Egypt. And the writer of the Hebrews goes on to say he didn't see the final promised land in the same way that his, uh, that his children afterwards would. But actually none of them did. God's promises to us are even greater than the promises that were given to those in the Old Testament. Through Jesus, God has given to you land. The new Jerusalem, heaven. He has given this land to you because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, because of what Jesus has done in forgiving you. He has given you blessing that there might be a place for you where there is no more tears or crying or pain anymore. And he has made you to be a blessing to others around you. As we give our life in service to others instead of service of ourselves. And he has given us offspring. Not in a physical sense of our own uh, offspring, but he's given us a greater family. It's hard to say in the Western world, isn't it, that there's something better than your nuclear family, but there is. It's called the church. Brothers and sisters, the offspring that will last forever that God has given to us. He has given us through Jesus land and offspring and blessing that cannot be taken away. Greater promises that we grasp onto by faith. Well, as this passage goes on, we find Jacob making the slow and steady uh, uh, trip down to Egypt. And in it, we see the provision of God. As the journey is almost over, Judah, one of the boys, you remember, the fourth born child, uh, but the one who has really stepped forward as the leader is sent ahead, sent ahead to, uh, to find Joseph and to find a conversation with him. And they settle in the area of Goshen, or, or it's sometimes known as Ramesses. It's a, it's a part on the outskirts of Egypt. And when they meet there, finally Jacob comes and he sees his son. And he's able to die a happy man. He sees the son that he thought was dead. But it doesn't become the focus of the passage here. Instead, Joseph continues his work, setting up a meeting with Pharaoh and his family. And he says in chapter 47, Make sure that when you, set, uh, when you uh, come into this meeting with Pharaoh, my brothers, tell him that you are shepherds as you are. This is really important because the Egyptians hate shepherds. They want to get rid of the shepherds as much as they can. They want to push them to the outskirts of society. But that's actually good for us. Because the best land in all of Egypt is the land of Goshen in the outskirts of the land. Say to him, we're shepherds. We know you don't like us being around. So can we have the land of Goshen? That's what happens. Look at chapter 47, verse 5. Chapter 47, verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. It seems like just a bunch of details to us. 
But when we look closely at what's going on in this chapter, we see the provision of God for his people. First of all, they are told by Pharaoh that they can live in the land of Goshen. It's the best of the land. And while there is going to be a great famine, and there is a great famine at this time, they will have the best of the land. Not only that, Pharaoh says in verse 6, you can have some jobs. I'm going to give you, you despised shepherds, some of my livestock to look after. They will be receiving jobs and income while everybody else is going backwards in life. And then we see this in verse 12. Look at what it says, 47 verse 12. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Again, it seems like just a minor detail, but Joseph is making sure that he gets his family food in a time of famine. And while the rest of the nation struggles, God looks after his people. They live in the best of the land. They have jobs from the Egyptian pharaoh and they're given food by Joseph himself. Now in your Bible, you've probably got at chapter 47, between verse 12 and 13, a heading. It helps us to think sometimes that there's a break in the, in the text going on here. But imagine the heading's not there. We've just been told in chapter 47, verse 12, that Joseph provides for his brothers. And then in the next few verses, from verse 13 through to verse 26, we are given a stark picture of what life is like for the Egyptian people. The Egyptian people have no food. And it's so bad that they give up their animals and sell them for the food. Once they've run out of money, they sell their animals for food. And once they've run out of animals, they then sell their land for food. And once they've run out of land, they sell themselves to Pharaoh as slaves in order that they might receive food. That's what verses 13 to 26 tell us. Meanwhile, look at verse 27. Then Joseph, sorry, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. You see what God is doing for his people? He has given his people the best of the land. Pharaoh has given them jobs to look after the livestock and bear in mind that the amount of livestock that Pharaoh is getting is only increasing more and more as the people of Egypt sell all their animals. So the job gets more and the pay gets more and... And Joseph is consistently giving his family food all the way through. And God's people prosper in the land. See, verse 12 and verse 27 are like bookends. God is providing for his people and in the middle, Egypt is in all sorts of trouble. And what this passage is trying to show us is that even though for a time God's people would call Egypt their home, And even though it's not really their land, and even though it's not really their home, God would provide for his people while they are away from home. And you need to know that God will provide for you while you are away from home. Your home is not here. Your home is in heaven. Your home is with the Lord Jesus. 
It has been won for us in Jesus and we are pilgrims passing through in this world. And yet we are told in Matthew, as we saw last week, that God will provide for his people. As we focus on our heavenly home, as Matt told us last week in the book of Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount, we are not to be anxious about the things of this world. Even though it's a natural reaction from us. We are instead to focus on our heavenly home and know that the Lord will provide for us. It's fascinating, isn't it, what we're like as people. Anxiety about life is a natural reaction that we all have. It's common for us. But sometimes we mix up the type of anxiety that we have. And the anxiety that we have is more like the people of God in the Old Testament. Remember the people of God in the Old Testament? God provided for them as they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And God provided manna for them over and over and over again. Their anxiety was not about having enough manna to eat. Of course, they had plenty of manna. Plenty for each day. But the anxiety came from it not being the right type of food. We like food better in Egypt. God, I know you're providing for me, but can't I have the good stuff? We say the same thing, don't we? God, I I know you'll provide for me in food, but it's not the right type. I know you'll provide me with shelter, but I'd like better shelter, please. I know you provide me with a job and income, but it's not really the way that I'd envisaged it. You see, God's promises are to provide for his people while they are away from home. And you and I both need to know That God promises to provide for us, for each one of us in the Lord Jesus Christ, while we are away from home. This is not our home. And yet God promises to look after us in these years away from home. And yet, we find out in this passage that after 17 years of living in the land of Goshen, Jacob will die. Now, of course, as we look at it, we don't see this as being a provision from God, do we? But God gives us what we need, not always what we we want. See, it's hard for us, isn't it, to see an application from a passage like this for Christians all around the world. How is it possible that there are Christians around the world in famine with no food today whatsoever and to say that these passages are true that God will provide? And frankly, how is it that those famine-stricken Christians are so joyful. It's because they see life the right way up. They realise that when Jesus speaks in the New Testament about clothing, what he's talking about most of all is clothing us with the righteousness of Christ, more valuable than anything we can put on our bodies. And when Jesus speaks about spiritual food, he's talking about his body that we eat by faith. And when Jesus is talking about the water we need, he's talking about the living water that refreshes our soul and gives us new and eternal life. Jesus always gives us these things that we need. Spiritual clothing and food and uh, spiritual food and spiritual water. Not to mention all of the daily gifts that he gives to each one of us day to day. Well, the final piece of this passage opens up for us a strange ritual at the end of Jacob's life. Come with me to chapter 47, verse 29. 
And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favour in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed, his, uh, bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now one small detail here is that his dad, Jacob, as the dream said back in chapter 37, bows his head towards Joseph, just as the dream said he would. But what takes our attention here is the strange promise ritual of putting a hand under the thigh. What does all of that mean? Well, in some ways it doesn't really matter. It's about a promise. And the promise is this. You must promise me, Joseph, when I die, don't leave me here. Don't bury me in Egypt. Take me back home where I belong. And this is a statement of the faith of Jacob. He knows the promises of God. He knows the land that God has promised to his people. And there'll be more of this next week. But in the meantime, we must ask ourselves the question, where do we belong? For the Christian, this is not our home. You know that classic movie, The Castle? Daryl Kerrigan, what does he say? It's not a house, it's a home. He says, you can take my house away, but it's, a, it's, it's not a house, it's a home. And we love Daryl Kerrigan as Australians, don't we? Because he taps into something that's true about us, but it's also dangerous about us as Australians. See, as Christians, we can unwittingly just jump onto the treadmill of life. The treadmill of life that everybody else is living. What does it look like? Well, you work really hard at school and you study as hard as you can. Then you get the best job you possibly can. Then you get the best home in the best part of the world that you possibly can. Then you keep working and give your kids the best opportunity that you possibly can. And then once they've had the best opportunity, you build up a nest egg and give it to the grandkids the best way you possibly can. And then you give all of the stuff away at the end to all of your family in the best way you can and bless them. And it's a really wonderful thing, but it's dangerous. Because it says what matters is in this world. And that this is our home. Where's your home? Is it in your property? Is it in the job in which you're working just to make sure that you won't lose the property that you have? I know someone will say, this is not a right time for talking about property and finances, Steve. I get it. But it's what the passage is saying. Where's our home? Where's our investment? Where's our security? Do we worry as much about our spiritual inheritance as our physical inheritance? See, none of these things are wrong. But it's misguided to follow the treadmill of the world around us. And not question it. The month of May is always an interesting one for me. I spend more nights away from home uh, in the month of May than I do uh, at home. It's just all uh, speaking on camps and different conferences and bits and pieces. And I'm away from home more than I'm at home. One of the guys that I consistently go on a conference with, he, he end, we end up uh, sharing the same uh, bedroom in one of these houses that we stay in almost every time. I don't know how it works that way. Uh, but he's a very interesting character and he's very different to me. We're only there for three days on this particular retreat, but he makes sure that he hangs up his clothes on clothes hangers and puts them in the cupboard for the three days that he's there. 
For me, there's just a pile of clothes in the corner because it doesn't really matter. I'm only there for three days. That's how I view life. That's how I view that. That's there. Now, it's not right or wrong, is it, to hang up the clothes or to put the clothes in a corner. But you and I need to remember that life in this world is like a three-day retreat. It doesn't mean what we do in this world doesn't matter, whether you put the clothes in the corner or you hang them up. But if my friend hung the clothes up in the wardrobe thinking that he was going to be there for 30 years, I'd have to have words with him. Mate, something's wrong here. You're only here for three days. And we're only here for a three-day retreat. Where is your focus? Your heart and your hope, your attention, where is it given to? See, this is why Christians can say with clarity, I give up my life here and now to serve others. Literally give up my life. Why? Because the goal is not a quarter acre block in 2508, as good as that might be. The goal is not a good job. The goal is not safe retirement. The goal is our heavenly home. See, this opens up everything for us, doesn't it? If all we're working for is the quarter acre block in 2508 and a good job that we can put on our resume, then that's its own reward. But when we realise that that's not what it's about, we can risk everything for Jesus because our heavenly home is secure. And so it means you can have all of those things, but you can risk everything for Jesus at the same time. This is what Jesus said in the passage we saw last week, didn't we? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We can do that because it doesn't matter if we lose our home today. It's hard to say, isn't it? It doesn't matter if we lose our job today, lose our home today. It doesn't matter what happens if we can risk it all for Jesus in seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. It doesn't matter because we have a secure home. So this afternoon, as you walk in the door, say this to yourself. This is not my home. Open the door. It's not my home. I live here. I'm thankful for it. But it's not my home. God's place that he has promised to you is your heavenly home, your eternal home. And you're just on a three-day retreat in the place that you live at the moment. And so use your life now to risk all that you have for the cause and glory of Jesus. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And, as in this passage, God will provide for you. What does the passage say? All this will be added unto you. Well, you might like to ask a question. I know I've um, killed a few sacred cows on the way through today. So you might like to ask a question or two. I'm going to give you a few uh, minutes to think about that. And I'm going to answer a couple of questions. Then we'll sing our final song.
Okay, thanks for your questions. Let me answer a couple. First of all, I've got one here titled from Youth Leaders. Hey Steve, can you give a shout out to the mission team? I presume they must be watching. I thought you'd be in the middle of nowhere, mission team. Hello. Everybody says hello here too. It's good to, good to hear from you. Hope the bus trip is going well. They're between Adelaide and Cooper Pedy today, so that's, um, that's where I just assumed that's in the middle of nowhere. No reception there, but I hope you're getting reception and hello. It's good to have you, good to have you with us. Um, and uh, please keep praying for them too. That would be a great thing to do, um, as we do. All right, a couple of other questions about the talk here. What is the reason, reason shepherds are despised? That's a good question. I'm not sure. They just are. That's what the passage tells us. And so Joseph uses it as a, a way uh, to keep them out and in the nice pastures out in Goshen. So it's a strategic thing on Joseph's part uh, to get them to think that way. Uh, how can you know you are doing what God wants you to do when it seems wrong, e.g. going to Egypt when Egypt was not allowed before? It's a good question. God will never do something that... Uh, is wrong, and that's because we've got the Bible now. So we're, we're a very different stage to what Jacob was in then. Um, Jacob knew, though, that the promises belonged in the in the land that God had promised. So his first instinct was not to do that, not to go down to Egypt. That was his first instinct, and he needed God to say, "No, it's okay. This is part of my plan for a time to go away and come back again." But God will never cause you to disobey His commands. That's just true. You've got his word and disobeying his commands is not something we're allowed to do. That's just not what we're allowed to do. So, um, uh, so God is never going to get you to go against his word. That's um, a straightforward one in that regard. Um, and so we've got to know God's word and have other people in our lives that know God's word and have that uh, going through our veins, as it were, uh, to make sure that we're doing uh, what God wants us to do, which is uh, obeying him. Uh, next one, 46 verse 4 says, bring you up again. Uh, could that be a reference to being raised with Christ when Christ returns? 1 Thessalonians 4.14. Well done knowing your Bible, that's excellent. I don't think so though, only because the next couple of chapters um, tell us that Jacob gets uh, buried in the land again. So next week we'll see in the very last chapter, chapter 50, uh, verse 13, his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and, and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham brought from, uh, with the field from Ephron the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, he returned back to Egypt. So um, that's, that's what he was literally going to do. So I will, I will bring you back here and, and have you buried here. Uh, and then Bex asked the, the last question, um, uh, is it always wrong to put your clothes on the floor in the corner? Um, but alas, we are sinful beings. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a helpful analogy, isn't it? But I guess the helpful analogy is, I put my clothes in the corner because I'm not setting up life in that house. I'm only there for three days, so I can, do it, I can sort of chuck them there. Uh, and uh, it's not a perfect analogy, but the idea goes, you're not setting up life in this world. Um, so uh, you, you've, got to con you've got to convince yourself you're not setting up life in this world. Uh, you've, got, you've got your home to come and to, to set our attention there. Let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we pray, please, that you would help us, even this morning, as we head home from here and walk inside our doors. First of all, we thank you for the shelter you've provided for us, each one of us. Nevertheless, we ask as we walk through that door that you would remind us this is not our home, that our home is with you, the home that you have prom promised us and the home 
uh, you have given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. Please remind us of this. We need to be reminded that we're not on the, the atheistic treadmill of the rest of this world. But we are on your plans and your purposes. And though oftentimes lots of things look similar to the world around us, please remind us of what is real and true, that we have a heavenly home with you. And this is a wonderful thing that we must live our lives for. Please help us, we ask, to therefore seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and know that we will be provided for. All these things will be added onto us, that we'll be provided for while we are away from home. We thank you for this passage that reminds us of this truth. We ask, please, that you would uh, extend our minds and our hearts to see what your word is saying, that we might trust you and your purposes for our life in Jesus' name. Well, we're going to stand and sing this final song. Uh, oh Lord, my rock and my...